Next on our municipal elections series are council candidates Christine Boyle and, and Iona Bonami, who are from the party One City Vancouver. This is a relatively new political party. It was founded in 2014 by independent activists and former COPE members. Community organizer, climate activist, and United Church minister, Councillor Boyle, was actually the first one city candidate to be elected in 2018. During her time on council, Christine is focused on issues related to climate justice, increasing affordable housing, and prioritizing walking, cycling, and transit over private vehicles. Running mate Iona has had over 13 years of experience as an urban planner. She currently works for the city of Vancouver as a senior transportation planner and is also a small business owner. There are several issues that are top of mind for our voters in this upcoming election. Christine and Iona have selected two to focus on today being housing and climate. And then finally, of course, financial accountability is one of our favorite topics. And so we're going to throw that in for fun as well. So ladies, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be here. Great. Now, before we get into those hot topics of housing and, and climate action, for the listeners who may not be familiar with both the uh, political party of one city or with either of you as, as our, our uh, guests and vying for uh, city council, can you maybe take a minute to each introduce yourselves to listeners and a little bit about the party? Do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, so as you said, I am a senior transportation planner at the City of Vancouver, and I've been there for over four and a half years. Um, and I'm also a mom of two young boys, a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. And they're my biggest reason for wanting to run for city council to help us create a city that's more livable um, for their generation and the generations to come. And I also have a small business that I run on the side uh, where I make natural skincare products and help people reduce their toxins at home. So oh, okay. a few different aspects of my life. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, you're very busy. I mean, it just being a mom of two kids alone, but yes. that, that's good. Yeah. Good intro. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Two very sweet kids. Yeah. Um, uh, I was elected for the first time in 2018. Um, and uh, also think a lot about the future of this city. I uh, was born and raised in Vancouver um, and have lived here most of my life. I moved away a couple times and kept coming back. My, uh, my parents and two sisters still live here. Um, and I see through that lifetime in Vancouver uh, the way that the city um, could do better in supporting people as they as they age in the city and as lives change. So I think a lot about all of the uh, friends we've seen get priced out of the city, um, families raising their kids further and further apart because uh, because young parents can't find a place to raise their kids near where their grandparents are. Grandparents can't find a place to downsize. You know, all of those pieces uh, have impacted our own lives um, and. Uh, and we'll get to climate. I, I I worry a lot about what that means for the future of our kids and also for the future of our infrastructure and the way we live together. And, and we've seen such huge impacts of that. So um, that's what keeps me up at night, okay. uh, juggling many hats as well, and, um, and feel really honored to have gotten to work on making some tangible changes on those fronts um, in four years and, and hope to have more One City colleagues at the table to keep doing that work. Okay, well, that's good. And we do have some good questions on uh, city infrastructure and how it's going to 
you know, is it in place for, you know, uh, the future of, you know, continued climate change? Before we jump into housing and climate, let me just talk a little bit more about One City. I mentioned in my introduction that uh, it was originally formed through some activists and also some people who kind of broke away from the, the COPE group. Um, and we obviously had uh, Gene Swanson and, and Brina Olette into our podcast a couple of weeks ago. Where, how did that come about and what caused uh, this uh, um, group to form out of uh, COPE? That's a good question. So uh, I had been a COPE member for many years, though lots of One City members have found us with no ap political affiliation um, okay. because of a shared interest in the issues that we're working on. Um, Jean and I have certainly worked together well on a number of issues that we're both passionate about, particularly around homelessness and, and housing equity issues. Um, I would say there are also times we've disagreed around some housing issues and where my focus has really been on um, kind of pragmatically getting work done, m moving the ball in the right direction, even if it's not moving as fast as uh, I would like it to or getting all the way. Um, I have a very pragmatic approach to um, politics and to making sure we're making life better for people day after day. Uh, on the issues I know matter to them and, okay. and working with whoever around the table is willing to do that work and get things done. Okay. Okay. That's good. One more question about um, uh, One City. Now, you're one of uh, actually quite a few parties that are not fielding a, a mayoral candidate. What's the reason for that? Um, we get asked that a lot. I get asked, I got asked if I was... So you're going to give me a great question yeah, answer. Yes, then. totally. <laughs> okay. So I'm very well practiced on this. Uh, um, I got asked a number of times if I would run. You know, the, uh, it's no secret that um, vote splitting uh, is a has an impact on mayoral races. Um, and my sense was that I have been able to get a lot done around the council table. Um, we have a weak mayor system, and so matters who's on council too. And I yeah. wasn't interested in risking losing my spot on council to run for mayor and to possibly split progressive votes in a way that elected a mayor who I who I worried would take us backwards on issues I cared about. Right. Well, that I will say, though, yeah. I think Christine would make a great mayor. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a plug for uh, 2026. Yeah. yeah, we'll yeah. see. We'll see. <laughs> well, like I asked Adrian Carr the same question. Yeah. I mean, look, I think anybody understands the political situation, like how, how a municipal government in Vancouver forms. I mean, it is a winner-take-all arrangement when it comes to the mayor versus one of 10 spots at city council. So, I mean, you know, I remember asking Adrian the same question. I mean, you, you, you slam dunk, you got the most number of votes by a country mile as, as city, as city councillor, why not run for mayor? And her, I, if I recall, I mean, she was one of my very first guests, was along the same lines of like, you know, I, I may become mayor, but then I may not, and then I don't have a seat at the table at all. So, um, okay, well, let's just jump into this topic of housing. Earlier this week, One City announced its housing platform. For the benefit of our listeners, can you please provide us with a basic overview of what a fairly in-depth plan you put together? Can you kind of like, in five minutes or less, summarize what this housing platform looks like? Yeah, so um, basically it uh, is looking at 
right now um, in a lot uh, in a lot of the city, we only allow single family homes or duplexes uh, to be built, and that takes up a lot of land. Um, what we want to do is to allow for six story buildings, uh, apartment sized buildings, to be built in place of those, and that would house a lot more people uh, on a piece of property, and also to have corner stores or neighbor neighborhood retail alongside that, so that people are able to walk easily walk down and just get their groceries without having to like get into a car. Like we used to have car. years ago. Like yeah. They kind of started, there's a good story I saw recently on like the, the loss of our uh, our local cor- corner stores that we used to have exactly. in the 1970s yeah. and 80s. Yeah, they okay. were you no. Know, the ones that we still see today were grandfathered in, but now they're illegal to be you know you, to have a new one. Oh, are they? Uh, except oh, I didn't know where they already exist. Oh. So yeah, we need to change our uh, zoning bylaw so we can reintroduce new corner stores and other neighborhood retail. Okay. Um, we're also really focused on nonprofit and supportive housing. Um, so we would allow them to be built faster um, to get through their zoning process more quickly mm-hmm. because right now if you want to build a co-op or a nonprofit um, development you have to go through a very lengthy process that increases the cost yeah. and re- decreases the likelihood of it actually happening right so we want to streamline that process um, to enable them to ensure that they have the financing in place and will actually get built quickly okay yeah, we, we both talked a little in our intro about um, raising kids here and, uh, and our housing platform um, thinks a lot about how families grow up together in this city. Um, one of the things we know is that, well, the population of Vancouver is growing as a whole. There are neighborhoods across the city where the population has been declining for decades. Um, and so in particular, our housing platform looks at how we strengthen those neighborhoods by by building new housing there and family-sized housing, uh, a- allowing more people to move back in. When neighborhoods are declining, we see existing small retail struggle. We're seeing that on West 10th uh, Avenue. A lot of businesses having to close down there because there yeah. isn't enough foot traffic, there aren't enough uh, neighbors around. Um, uh, neighborhood schools having to close, not having enough people to sustain good public transportation. So um, we've been really looking at how do we support rebuilding those neighborhoods, strengthening those neighborhoods, and doing so in a in a way that's actually viable. You know, I think in the election, uh, in any election, you hear a lot of people talking about affordability and, you know, um, uh, uh, often what they're actually proposing is basement suites or laneway homes. We're in a massive housing crisis and a hiring crisis related to it because people can't find places to live here. And right. so our platform um, really aims to tangibly address the scale of that crisis, uh, which isn't going to be a secondary basement suite in a handful of places. We need affordable housing in, in every neighborhood of the city. Okay. Okay. That's good. Well, that gives a good overview. Why don't we spend a minute talking about those two items? So you talked one of Iona you mentioned was uh, these uh, six-story buildings on on what would be deemed today as like a single-family lot, mm-hmm. and then the second one is was on um, fast-tracking the approval process for say co-op or not-for-profit housing. So um, 
So let me maybe ask you, are you in favor, and Christine, maybe you can comment because you mentioned Gene earlier and you agree on some things and some you don't. If, if, do you like this idea of you've got a co-op housing application or non-profit, should they be able to just sort of fast track through the system, not needing public hearings, not needing to have rezoning approval, like they should be able to just acquire some land, convert it to whatever they need to and build their accommodation? So I brought that proposal to this council. Oh, um, you did? Okay. This term, Gene supported it. Um, the mayor supported it. The rest of council uh, voted against it, unfortunately, because okay. the community housing sector, nonprofit housing experts, um, came and spoke in support of it, and particularly articulated. I think it's worth clarifying. It's not like boom and it's built. There, there are a number of ways neighbors still engage that aren't the public hearing process, which is kind of the loudest piece, but um, town halls, neighborhood notifications and consultation, a, a way to have your voice heard. But that final approval, as we've proposed it and as I tried to propose it to council, um, is delegated to staff uh, in the end based on the policy that we would have in place. Um, okay. Okay, so you already brought this to the uh, so table. So I brought this to the table, and, and, yeah. And so you brought a table, supported by Jean, and who else? And and Mayor Stewart. And Mayor Stewart. Yeah. And you got 11 people. So three were in favor. Yeah. And eight were against. Yeah. Okay. So if I can just, you know, be devil's advocate, you've got people like the Green Party generally t tend to be kind of progressive, right? Yeah. How, how, like what, if you were to look back and kind of like revisit, okay, where did it, where did it go wrong? Like how come we didn't have more buy-in? What's your take on that? Um. I remain confused. Okay. I remain unclear about why the Greens didn't support it because they have vaguely supported that idea. Yeah. Um, but in that moment, didn't support my proposal of it, despite it being having strong support from the community housing sector. And one of the reasons, I mean, look, a, a two or three year rezoning process, as Iona said, adds a lot of cost and so yeah. makes the final housing less affordable from opening day. Yeah. Um, but one of the other things articulated uh, by nonprofit housing folks is actually that um, their ability to access senior government funding yeah. is significantly improved if the zoning is in place already. I see. So they can get that funding, which we know is needed to make yeah. housing more affordable if um, though if because senior, senior government, governments know it's a sure thing it's going to get built in the it's not immediately yeah. right so yeah, if, if they can show years. it's close uh, -huh. uh it, it'll get built yeah. then we as a city are more likely to get federal and provincial funding to build the sorts of housing that we all agree that we need um there so i, I know you've already interviewed the greens it's hard to ask yeah. them now um I, I do think there's support broadly for the idea mm -hmm. um i think it was think there were political reasons it didn't get supported on the council table um, and uh, I know um, there's been a lot of pushback since that it was not supported okay. uh, and so I am hopeful that we could get it done in the okay. next term in I mean and okay. again my pitch is with more one city people around the table we can have clear plans you know yeah. m one of the things I have struggled with on this council is the inconsistency and unpredictability around housing both at the policy level and in public hearings and okay. i think that's hard for the public it's hard for industry you know we hear that from from nonprofit and and private housing providers yeah. um, and uh i have been 
clear and consistent in, in my approaches in advocating for more housing in every neighborhood, particularly more co-op and nonprofit housing, particularly streamlining and reducing red tape to get that housing built. Iona, you mentioned earlier um, that you want to see the, um, the, this process streamlined for nonprofits, co-op housing, because some projects just never come to fruition because it just takes too long and they run out of funding or they don't have the funding to be able to do that. Um, again, to be devil's advocate, because I've, I've spent a lot of time, I know a lot of the, the top developers in the city, and unfortunately, I just can't get any of them on camera because they're so fearful of speaking out against uh, candidate or council people like yourself, Christine, to be honest with you. That's what they tell me. They just don't want to put them, get themselves a black mark by city council mayor by calling out city council mayor for what you just described, which is a tedious, very long and expensive process. So to be devil's advocate, isn't it kind of makes sense that you just try and streamline the whole system? Like, forget about whether it's co-op or non-for-profit. I mean, sh if we if we have a housing a, a crisis and the problem can be probably largely solved by just more supply, you know, create more housing, there's more places that people live, mm -hmm. shouldn't we just streamline the whole thing and forget about whether or not it's for-profit, co-op, or, or not-for-profit? I think there are a lot of efficiencies that we can achieve and we should be achieving in all areas of permitting um, at the city. And I, as being a small business owner, I know how long it takes to get a permit. Yeah. My dad is also a small contractor and he tells me all the time how long <laughs> it takes <laughs> to get a, a building permit or you know, um, all, of, all of those various steps you have to follow. So yes, I think we should be looking at streamlining um, kind of everything from yeah, building um, to our community events, you know, closing our streets to have open street events, like all of those things that we should be looking at. Okay. Yeah. And our housing platform absolutely goes there. So um, we have a particular emphasis on making it faster and easier to build non-market housing. But as Iona spoke to, the proposal to rezone residential areas to allow up to four stories of condos or six stories of rental is getting at just that. We don't need to have council micromanaging every specific piece of right. land and the slope of the roof on it. Right uh -huh. now, it's much easier to build a, a tear down an old single family home and build a big new single family home. Sure. That's not getting us anywhere. So we no, certainly are looking at and proposing pretty ambitious approaches uh, for non-market and market housing to get the type of housing we need. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I was going to also mention like the um, the concern about public not having an opportunity to have a say if there's no public hearings again as yeah. Christine was saying. That is only like one aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And public hearings, unfortunately, the way they're set up right now, they only allow a certain a small percentage of people to express their views. And right. it's often people who will have time to wait for hours, you know, to be able to speak on the phone or so come what, to council. So what would you replace public hearings with if you were to remove public hearings? Uh, well, Christine said, like, we could have town halls. Um, so where it's less, like, fewer stakes at the table, yeah. you know, and earlier on in the process when we're developing community plans, you know, that's a really good opportunity for us to hear from the public what they would like to see kind of at a higher level, mm -hmm. um, what they would, the types of developments they want to see, the types of stores they want to see, um, the types of services they would mm -hmm. like. So at that time, it's a great time for people to kind of, look uh, a little bit further out into the, the longer term yeah. and have that vision of what their community could look like for their children and their, their grandchildren. Okay. 
do you have so just to make sure we're clear do you have a if if your position is to get rid of public hearings do you have a definitive alternative or are you just saying get rid of it and we keep going with the rest of the other ways in which people can communicate with us or do you have an alternative like a clear so we're not saying no public hearings on anything but but we are saying let's shift away from vancouver over the last uh decade in particular has um, leaned heavily into spot rezoning. So we end up having public hearings for um, a lot of projects. That, and just to clarify, what is spot rezoning so we understand? It's a good question. So yeah. it's a it's a rezoning decision on each individual piece of land rather than kind of a community-wide decision. So okay. we end up having these long processes about each individual project. Um, and what we're suggesting is for the majority of projects, particularly, as I said, four-story strata and up to six-story rental, um, we can have one public hearing that makes that decision across a, a, an area rather than having to go through a multi-day process on in each individual lot. But there will still be projects that are outside of a neighborhood plan, outside of that kind of process where we would have a public hearing if it's particularly unusual for for one reason or another. Okay. Um, but not, like I said, not the sort of micromanaging that we see now, not a lot by lot. Okay, that hearing. seems reasonable. Let's zero in on this one strategy that I think has caught a lot of people's attention, which is the idea of taking a single family uh, property and basically getting, by your proposal, having almost automatic approval to convert it into a six-story apartment building or a four-story strata building. Have I got that right? Yeah. So if you look at most lots in Vancouver, whether you're talking East Van, West Van, standard size lot is 33 feet by you know 120 to 160. So are you proposing that, like, uh, let's say, for example, up in my neighborhood, I live in West Point Gray area, somebody's on a 33-foot wide lot by 140 feet, and uh, I sell my house, the new buyer as a builder comes along, they can literally tear down that house and put up a four-story strata building have I, is that, have I got that right? Yeah, there's a, the a, a number of um, details, uh, okay. you know, that are worth noting. Um, and that, Let's hear them, yeah. Uh, so one of them is around land lift. Um, if we're rezoning residential areas to allow for more density, which, again, we think there are significant community and health benefits to doing. Yeah. Um, uh, if that increases land value on those lots, we, we are proposing a kind of set CAC, a... Uh, uh, a public benefit contribution that would go towards amenities in the neighborhood or other affordable housing um, in another location so that it's clear there's community benefit from yeah. from land lift that's created. Yeah, as a transportation planner, I know how difficult it is to get funding for new transportation projects. So it is really important to make sure any an increase in land value um, that is generated through this uh, process, we capture that and be able, are able to invest it in, in the transportation infrastructure, the community centers, libraries, right. those types of things that we need to have a healthy community. Mm -hmm. And as more people live in the neighborhood, we, we want more of those um, public amenities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, let's use West 10th because, again, in my neighborhood, I, I know when you mentioned it earlier, Christine, like I know well, like when we moved into that neighborhood in 2013, I'd say the vacancy rate amongst the commercial buildings there was and retail stores was like maybe the vacancy rate was maybe as high as 20 percent. 
it's got to be well over 50 at this point. Like I, I'd actually think probably maybe like two out of 10 shops are in business and the rest are just shut down. It's really quite sad. I mean, there's so many banks and there was a bike shop, there was a men's clothing store. I mean, they're, they're just all gone. It's amazing. Um, and I attribute it to, well, partly there's no grocery store, the Safeway's gone, and that was an anchor location. Now, just south of West 10th is West 11th, and you've got all these uh, really nice single-family homes. Just again, to go back to your idea, if I was to be a builder and I went and bought one of those houses that kind of backs on to West 10th, I should be able to tear down that house and build a six-story rental apartment building. Have I got that right? Yeah. Well, Christine has said the, the crisis that we have are facing yeah. right now with people, you know, growing homelessness on the streets, yeah. people, renters who are facing renovation. Uh, th that is an immediate crisis that we need to deal with. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that is okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, and and I would add, right now you could do that and build a large new single-family home that would also cast a shadow um and and right. yeah, that's okay, allowed fair. by right um yeah. and so i do think we need to tip the scales and make it easier to build housing that more people can afford yeah um rather than continuing to make the easiest option the least affordable option sure okay uh just to wrap up around this concept of uh converting a single family home to a four level condo or a six level all rental um, you mentioned a minute ago, Christine, about the CACs. For the listeners that aren't familiar, this is community-assisted contribution. This is basically when a developer is going to, you know, presumably make a profit, part mm -hmm. of what the city expects. And it's not just Vancouver. Lots of mm -hmm. most municipalities do this. There's an expectation that something is provided by that developer. Um, I think Ian Gillespie is famous for his chandelier that's below the the, the Yeah, the, the public art contribution is a separate fund. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Um, so, but that's the, you you commented on that earlier. You talked about land lift and CACs. Is that, yeah. have I got that right? And so, yeah. so again, going back to that analogy, there's a house for sale in West 11th near 10th Avenue Village. I agree. We want more people live in that area because yeah. it's, you know, it's kind of becoming a bit of a ghost community. Um, and so the idea would be, well, I'm going to make a lot more money by building a uh, six-story all rental building so I need to provide something either way by just writing a check to the city or providing some maybe some land towards a community park or something is that the idea here yeah and and it's uh, it's not a wide open bucket which is why I specify the public art fund on large projects is a separate contribution um, the bucket of community amenity contributions goes towards um, public benefit in the neighborhood. Sometimes a portion of it is across the city, but in recognition that more people living here are going to need more services. So the I think um, in your neighborhood about the public library, that public library is in need of uh, a, a rebuild, facelift. particularly yeah. if we're welcoming a lot more people into the neighborhood and hopefully bringing a lot more foot traffic back to that yeah. beautiful stretch of West 10th. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's one bucket. And then um, uh, DCL's uh, utility contributions are another piece. And again, where we're adding uh, a lot new a lot of new housing in neighborhoods that uh, have seen a decline and have um, fewer people living in them, there's going to be some utility upgrades that uh, that need to be made. Yeah. Okay. 
Would you have uh, like a almost like a schedule which says if yeah. you okay, so it's Make very it, straight. It, it's not a big negotiation. It's clear it's, because one of the things we hear from industry, I'm sure you do, is that yeah. the more predictable the more viable absolutely yes. and we do have a schedule right now for the development cost levies you do already okay. um but it's the cac's that is not very transparent and yeah. so people yeah developers kind of have to guess at this point well on behalf of all these developers who never want to get on camera i can tell you if you two ladies can get back into city hall and, and do this that'll be huge i mean I, one of the developers in particular um they basically have let their their land that they've acquired in vancouver over the last decade and a half they've let it run like they've built and they're not rebuying and they're focused on north vancouver burnaby and edmonton because they're just like i go build north vancouver i know exactly what the terms are going to be and that's one of the big uh, complaints they have about vancouver i think the other benefit is transparency for the public too yes. because it, it's unpredictable for builders um but there's also a lot of mistrust from the public about what benefits they're seeing and right and we need to rebuild that trust so we can tackle these issues. And yeah. so that's that's a big part of wanting to be clear about what we're expecting and what neighborhoods are getting. So let's assume that you were able to get be successful and all of a sudden we start seeing these four level and six level accommodations popping up throughout the city. And let's go get back to 10th Avenue or actually another good example would be Olympic Village. And, and um, you know, if we reflect on Olympic Village, um, you couldn't get anybody to move into Olympic Village after 2010 because, you know, it was that chicken or egg scenario where businesses didn't want to move in because there was nobody living there. And then people didn't want to live there because there were no services. Now, of course, it's the exact opposite. Like, it seems like everybody wants to live in Olympic Village. Um, and, and so if, I, if you think about this concept that uh, Michael Weebs talked about yesterday, which is his, his philosophy of, like, complete communities, and you look at Olympic Village, still does not have a school, okay? And so... It's one thing to provide housing, but how do you address the issue? I know you talked about corner stores, that's one, but how do you revive an environment like West 10th, for example, so that um, people can look at it and go, well, yeah, great, there's an apartment building, but there's no stores and I can't you know, get my dry cleaning done or get a haircut or buy some clothes. Well, how do you address that? Yeah, so uh, we're also, as part of our platform, we are also in... Um going to increase density for employment, jobs, and commercial space, industrial space, so that okay. you have all of these other jobs available and services uh, in the community. And as you said, uh, schools, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Olympic Village is still without a school, yeah. and we don't want that to happen again. Uh, we don't want any and existing schools to close down because their population in the area is declining and we want to make sure any new community or any growth that comes in um, is accompanied by that those really important community um, uh, services and facilities that we need um, like the schools and like the community centers. So before we move on to climate is there anything about, about further about your housing platform that we haven't talked about that you're really excited about that you want to kind of put a plug in for listeners to hear about? Yeah, so another really important part of our housing platform is protecting existing renters, um, making sure that they are not renovated and that um, we have an actual body that will advocate for their rights. Uh, right now we have a uh, renter's office and we want to turn that into a tenancy advocacy office um, that will actually advocate on behalf of renters um, so they don't get renovated uh, or evicted. And, and the other thing is um, if 
a development uh, is going to happen on the piece of property that they're living in, um, they, they get first right of refusal to come back. And while they are living else somewhere else temporarily, that they get a rent top up so that they're not increased, you know, they don't have to pay more than their current rent. Right. And when they come back, they pay a rent that's similar below to what they were paying before. So mm. that's an extension of um, some of the well, rental protections. discourage anyone from wanting to build? I mean, if I'm just a sort of a mid-level or, you know, kind of one, one building at a time kind of operator, not a huge uh, builder like uh, the ones you see downtown here. Wouldn't that kind of discourage me from wanting to build if I, I'm just going to get the same rent, but I, you know, I've spent all this money in investing in a brand new house or building? I, I actually think that it's an important question, um, yeah. and it, and, and that's why stronger tenant protections are an important match to allowing more rental to be built in more parts of the city. Because uh-huh. um, historically, what we have allowed in Vancouver is new rental to only be built where there's existing rental. Right. Um, and so it's displaced current tenants and meant a loss of some of our more affordable stock um, because that's the only place, we, because we need more rental and that's the only place we've allowed it. We would instead like to see that existing rental stock protected at least for a couple decades while we're building out more rental options right. um, so that tenants have places to go. Um, so protecting uh, as much as we can the tenants in those buildings and those buildings while making it a lot easier, more predictable um, and faster to build more rental housing where there isn't currently rental housing. Uh, I think those two pieces need to go together and okay. that's the strength of our housing platform. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, let's jump to climate. Ready? Yeah. Okay. So we know that cli- we know that climate change is real. I think like majority of the population at this point has come to accept that, especially after the like, heat domes from 2021 and you know the, the crazy storm we had earlier this year. It's just so obvious. People often talk about you know when they were little, they used to be able to like you know make snowmen in their front yard or backyard, and it's a very rare occasion now. Is the city of Vancouver equipped? to like infrastructure wise this might be a good question for you Iona is the city of Vancouver equipped to deal with the future climate change we're probably still going to face I think there is a lot of room for us to actually do more to make sure our city is prepared for yeah frequent these more frequent kind kind of extreme weather events um, the floods we've seen the heat domes we experienced uh, last year we weren't prepared at the at that point yeah. um, so making sure that people are safe um, that they have places to go and they are well looked after, especially seniors. Like in the heat dome, a lot of yeah. seniors didn't even realize they were, um, you know, un- in heat exhaustion. Uh, making sure that we are taking care of the entire population in those events is really important. And then also making sure that our infrastructure can withstand these floods, the sea level rise, mm-hmm. um, you know, our transit system. Uh, is air conditioned and yeah. make sure that the people and is it I don't know. I, we have some yeah okay. like some of our sky trains and some of our buses increasingly do have air conditioning yeah. um so making sure those things are in place and also having redundancy in our system um so if there is a disruption to one route there is another option so that the bus service can still remain people can still get home if there's an emergency that happens right okay yeah 
So maybe since we're on the theme of climate change and you did highlight your climate emergency action plan, one of the goals that you um, stated in that plan, Christine, was that you wanted to see carbon pollution in the city of Vancouver cut by 50% by 2030. Have I got that right? Okay. So it's 2022. So that's like close to the end of 2022. So we're like, you know, eight years away or seven almost from getting there. So the first question is, mm-hmm. are we on track right now? We aren't on track. We're no, not? Okay. no. I mean, I ran the math on this myself because I went through the budget. I nerd out on these kind of things. And, right. and, and I, by my estimates, um, the amount of uh, carbon emission reductions uh, by the city of Vancouver was so small in the last, whatever is three years, that for the next seven years, we have to almost like 4X the amount of activity that we've done so far. Yeah. So like, even if we just continue to do what we're doing, we're going to totally miss that target. So, um, so I kind of knew the answer was no, we're not yeah, on track. So, um, so tell me like, how do we get there? Yeah. It's such a good question. So I will say, um, to not, just so I'm not too doom and gloom all of the time. One of the biggest challenges has been um, turning the ship around. So our emissions were increasing year after year. You know, population was increasing too. We're now at a place where our population is increasing and our emissions aren't. E- even that is a is a tough turn to make and an incredibly important one. Yeah. Um, you are absolutely right that we need to accelerate. Uh, our action and my hope and and evidence from elsewhere is that these actions can build upon themselves so that uh, emissions start to reduce more quickly if we're acting and it's not a mystery the work that we need to do like I said it's it's getting gas out of buildings and it's um, getting gas out of our transportation sure. system the challenge is doing that as we add more people and to be honest the challenge is doing it in a way that doesn't overly punish people who are struggling the most and and coming back to that question I think is really important mm-hmm. yeah we know as I said yeah we know what the solutions are it's about kind of how do we mix that with the immediate needs that we have right now um, and yeah not increasing the burden on people who are already facing a lot of other right. more immediate needs um, having a roof over their head, getting a sure. job. And so achieving that balance is really important for us. Right. But we always really need to keep in mind that, yeah, in the long term, if we don't do something now, yeah. uh, we're going to be you know, paying for it more out sure. of our pocket. Uh, so well, I mean, we are looking at um, requiring old, larger homes right now to, if they are going to replace their heating system, to have to have re- replace it with a renewable energy system mm-hmm. um, which often provide air conditioning too we yes. have a heat pump in our home and sure. we've been happy campers for that in yeah. in the summer yeah um, one of my very first guests on coastal front like three years ago was matt horn mm-hmm. you may know matt yes. yeah so mm-hmm. and and i love that was a great conversation i'm very passionate about the environment myself my whole family's adopted the evs um we don't ride our bikes so much but we you know because we have a lot of kids and a lot of hockey gear what he stated was, if you look at just the carbon emissions from the city of Vancouver's own infrastructure, not the city as a whole, but just what the city owns, which are you know vehicles and buildings, 80% is from just those two things. And so he talked a lot about you know trying to you know retrofit old uh, you know school schools, city hall, uh, other older buildings, get them off gas, 
Um, one of the things I talked with the Green Party about yesterday was the outdoor pools. I mean, I think um, Kitsilano Pool, which I love taking my kids to, is powered by either diesel or, or gas. And, and, and just even pools alone, to convert those to be heated by electricity or something else, is a massive cost, right? There's a huge amount of both infrastructure and converting to electricity is very, very expensive. Um, when you look at the supply chain issues around EVs right now, like nobody can get an EV. So all these rebates that uh, are being promoted by the provincial and federal government really don't mean anything because you gotta wait 18 to 24 months to get an electric vehicle. So how do you possibly manage that? I mean, how do you, I guess my question would be, if your goal is 2030 to cut emissions by 50%, but the amount of money and infrastructure that needs to be spent is just so monstrous, aren't you kind of kidding yourselves that you can even get there in the first place? Like, why not have a realistic goal? Like, make make it 2050 and make your zero emissions like 2100 or something like that. Um, I mean, the goal is set by the science. Um, okay. So there's not a lot of negotiating there. But, I, but the changes are um, exponential, I think, is what we see. You know, it's it, if... EV uptake, I don't have the exact number, but we're not seeing it go up by the same amount each year. We're seeing quite a steep curve on that front, which is why we've hit this moment. It's the same situation with heat pumps right now, where there's more demand than there is supply. Um, But industry is scrambling to catch up. And I think what we're going to see pretty quickly is is a massive shift on that front um, because of it. And so that makes me hopeful the, the market is going to catch up pretty quickly to that demand so you're confident in that uh i mean i'm nervous of course yeah. I, I lie awake worried about this okay. all of the time um but because uh, um, we're like if we just talk about evs for a second which is a area i have a lot of knowledge on we actually had we had joe lowry who is one of our guests he's actually a world-renowned leader and knowledge uh so thought leader if i guess call him in the world of uh, lithium he gets hired by the world's largest lithium mining companies and he's basically said we are in a shortfall between uh, demand and supply. That's just the, the 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 demand for it and the supply are actually going in different directions, uh, because it's so hard to mine it, it and there's so much demand, and that's why we're seeing um, delivery times for electric vehicles taking longer and longer. Like a, a year or two ago, even in the thick of COVID, you could get an electric vehicle in like six months. Now you're waiting like 18 to 24 months, and the predictions are it's going to get out to further like three to four years. So if we just talk about EVs alone, how do we possibly achieve these goals if the industry can't produce because of these supply chain issues? Yeah. Well, when we talk about EVs by itself, I guess yeah. it's not the only part piece of the puzzle. Um, it's one part of it. Like. And it is about building complete whole communities okay. where people can actually get out and just walk or bike, um, right. maybe to their hockey game, hopefully, and right. in the future, without having to get into a car. Okay. Um, so that is a really big part of it, because having you know just a lot of EV vehicles on the streets is not going to be a solution. It takes up; they still take up space. There's still going to be the congestion problem, right? right. So the fewer okay. people we, That's a good comment. Yeah. the fewer um, uh, people who have to drive, the better. Um, and then also, I think we can be working with industry to to make sure that there are people, the technicians are trained, they they have the education, the skills required uh, to meet these industry demands, and and work with industry um, to to ensure that. Um, you know, people who are employed in uh, a business where it, uh, you know, not, 
uh, in a business where it is it requires burning fossil fuel to get them retrained right. um, into into the green energy sector. Just going to add to that. Uh, on the example of heat pump, city staff uh-huh. work with post-secondary institutions like BCIT to make sure um, as our approach is uh, adapting that we're working with industry and supporting that retraining, um, supporting those local jobs and trades and post-secondary institutions to meet the growing needs in the city. Um, but I think I- Iona articulates well that on EVs, we can't just shift our whole current transportation system from gas cars to electric cars. We do need right. uh, to, to build out a more robust system, which might not mean that you're carrying your hockey equipment to your game, but whatever trips don't need a car makes more space sure. for the trips that do need a car and where families can downsize from two vehicles to one or uh, from one vehicle to a car, car share. share. Yeah. Um, my family drives a... a mi- pretty significant sized electric cargo bike that I'll stick two kids on the back or a lot of groceries on. So um, building out all of those options gives people more choice and and, um, improves our transportation system too. Yeah. Okay, good. That's well said. Yeah. And I'm I'm in favor. I love the idea. Um, Okay. Let's now jump to our favorite topic, which is financial accountability. Um, I thought instead of trying to get very philosophical about this, I'd narrow in on one particular topic that's kind of bugged me a bit, and you would know well, and it's what I call the cup tax fiasco. Um, Despite being approved prior to COVID, the cup tax was implemented this calendar year. And it's basically for those who don't know, although I think everybody in the city knows at this point, (laughs) it's a 25 cent takeaway for uh, the, you know, cup provider. Now, Coastal Front did a lot of our own research on this. Um, if you look at the three largest coffee providers in, uh, in Vancouver, BC, Canada, it's Tim Hortons, Starbucks, and McDonald's. I mean, three major publicly traded Canadian-American companies. And so if you look at this, what I, again, I term it the cup fiasco because I think it's a bit of a fiasco. To me, it's just a cash grab. I mean, I haven't seen McDonald's or Starbucks uh, or Tim Hortons make any changes to their practices, yet they're now collecting an extra 25 cents per sale of coffee from customers going straight into their pocket. So I guess my first question, because I I believe, Christine, you were in favor of supporting this cup uh, tax. Sort of cautiously... And okay. with some reluctance, but... but right. uh, and this came out quickly. Like, I mean, it was yeah. like January 1st, the tax came in. I think you guys were on a lot of pressure under city council because like two weeks later, you guys brought it back to the table with staff because like people were going, this is crazy. Why am I paying this 25 cents? Here we are. It's like uh, September of 2022. We still have this cup tax. To me, it's like a, just a cash grab for like the biggest corporations in the world, it's not like benefiting anybody. It's not accomplishing any issues around environment. Um, it's not helping. I mean, maybe it's helping a little bit some of these small coffee shops. But ultimately, we ran the math. And in Vancouver alone, we estimate that each of those three franchises takes in about an extra $3 million a year now in revenue straight to their bottom line, pure profit. And they haven't changed their practices. So I guess my first question is kind of more towards yourself, Christine, because you've been on council for this. Yeah. Why do we still have this cup tax? Yeah, I mean, I have wrestled with all of these same pieces, absolutely. You know, I think if you asked Vancouverites now, certainly a few years ago, people are aware 
walking down the street and seeing garbage cans overflowing with these sort of quick single-use products, that we should do something about that. That that yeah, I think um, everybody's you know, in favor of that. Yes, hundred percent. That this is a problem to be solved. Um, yeah. And this is one of, quite frankly, many examples where local governments don't have the tools that we need to try to tackle the issues in front of us. And um, that's a, a issue I raise uh, again and again with pr- particularly partners in the provincial government because. Uh, so much more is expected of local governments and we don't sure. have the tools. So as you say, um, one of our challenges on this front, so you know, on a, a lot of different issues, a fee is an effective tool in shifting consumer behavior. Sure, that's what, ta- I mean, taxes and have so, two purposes. They change b- behavior and they generate revenue. Yeah, so here's this problem, people recognized it existed. Here's a tool we've used to solve other problems. Um, uh, but it's not causing but, any change. Yes, except it is exactly. It's not, and it's not even in revenue. Like at least if it was going to the city, I'd be like, okay, well, you know, at least there's more money in the in the in the balance of the coffers of yeah. the city of Vancouver. But it's literally going into the hands of McDonald's Corporation, one of probably the largest polluters in the world. We talk about carbon emissions. Yeah. And and they're just getting more money. Like I guess my simple question is, why don't you just you know, go yeah. to council, say, look, this is a silly decision. We made a mistake. Let's cancel this thing and revisit. So I um, was very in favor of looking at the the impact on lowest income residents, and that was the sort of first big flag. I think you're right, as you said. You know, the empty homes tax is an example here. The rep, the the tax has an impact on properties coming back into the rental market, and where they don't, there's revenue generated that goes into yeah, affordable exactly. housing. That works. Um, the problem with this tax is that it, it's, it's not, not going. In, it's not, not collecting. It's anything. not going into anything of any benefit. A, um, so that first piece around how it was impacting somebody getting a voucher for a free drink from a local shelter or charity, um, we got on that pretty quickly. I guess the thing that I had wrestled with a, a lot about this, about your exact question of do we kill it or figure out how we make it work, um, is that the problem still exists and all of this work had been done on this approach and so by the time it came to council and I uh, I mean I I spoke when we were talking about climate about my very fierce commitment to policies that make a difference yeah um and so I have not been championing championing this type of approach I feel really mixed about it um but in the end having seen that work be done I am interested in how we evaluate what you know what numbers our staff uh, have been collecting and and whether we can convince the province to change that legislation yeah. so that at least that revenue is going towards something if we can get the province to make sure. that change and there are numbers that it's shifting behavior good we should keep adapting it and if we yeah. get those numbers back and this whole thing is a fiasco a, a year in like but it you really has need been staff so far to get you numbers i mean isn't it kind of obvious to you i mean like basically i go to mcdonald's i buy a coffee i pay them an extra 25 cents the city doesn't get anything i'm out, I'm out of pocket mm-hmm. 25 cents they haven't changed their practices whatsoever i mean what more do you need i mean like i guess the question I mean, is and and 
my behavior isn't a perfect example of this, so this is why yeah. I want the numbers. You might have the numbers more than me, but is that the, the shifting commun- mm-hmm. uh, consumer behavior? Are people bringing a cup more often than they would have? Or, or Well, like, I can, yeah, okay. Yeah. Maybe you aren't, my, my, and, and my, I was bringing a cup my, before, so we're not good examples. Yeah, so that's, yeah. I mean, that's why I'm my, interested in... My wife's in, tried it. So my wife goes and she says, I've got three cups. Can you put my flurry in there? Like, no, we can't do that. Yeah. Right? So this is where I'm just like, oh, God, like, let's... I, I look. I applaud you. Yeah. I, I applaud you, folks, for getting rid of banning plastic single-use bags. Yeah. You know, even even like the you know charging for for paper bags. I can I can kind of see that because now people are changing their behavior. Do you need yeah. a bag? No, I'm okay. I brought my bag. Yeah. But the cup part one, anyways. Well, you I, don't, I mean, look, I, I'm not attached to it. As I yeah. said, this is not okay. the hill I I'm dying on. If the numbers come back to us that it's not working, then we need to figure out another. Yeah. Um, approach absolutely okay. because like I said I, I, I can think, get the numbers for you far faster than, okay than, you send than me the numbers I'm happy to <laughs> you know I, I, I certainly believe very strongly in and and our platform throughout is is focused on evidence-based decision making you yeah. know one of our other council candidates Ian Cromwell is a um is a PhD in public health and and his work is on evidence-based public health decisions and yeah. um, he continues to bring that lens to our platform that I think is incredibly important making this these decisions based on the evidence that we have evaluating uh, them well and and uh, I wish some of that had happened earlier in the process um, hey look we all you know, make mistakes but here we are and, and if we, you're gonna lose yeah. don't lose the lesson yeah um, okay let's jump to uh, one other question I have around financial accountability and it's a really simple question a lot of politicians get hung up on this because they don't get asked this question very much. You get reelected, you become two of the 10 city council members for this next four years in, in a month's time. How are you going to save taxpayers' money? Yeah. Well, I think we, um, as a staff person and as a taxpayer, I, I, I know how important it is to make sure that we're spending our taxpayers' money efficiently um, and putting it in the, you know, in solutions that will actually achieve the results that we, we want. Um, so I think it, it is really in, important for us to make sure that uh, any decision we make, we are always thinking about what impact it has. Is it worth the, expend- the expenses that we're going to put towards it? So, Yeah, I have... Feel like I've been talking actually uh, about financial accountability and transparency a lot this term in part because I believe strongly that government is going to need to play a role in tackling the crises that we face. Um, and you know, I I think of one of the examples that came to mind in thinking about this was the the Portland Loo um, that the park board built at quite a high expense. Um, uh, examples this like is the two million dollar toilet we're yeah, talking about. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So examples like that um, get me worked up because I want us to build five public washrooms if we can, rather than just one with that money. You know, I, I yeah. want us to be doing um, the most possible good for each dollar that that we are entrusted to be spending on behalf of the uh, public. And so I, um, I probably have spent more time in the weeds of each budget in the last four years than anyone else around the council table. I mean, I, I am uh, pretty determined on this stuff um, because there's so much to do. And so we need to be doing it well. Um, and, and then the other thing I'd add, and we've spoken about this particularly on housing, is that uh, there are a number of ways that we are proposing streamlining 
processes to to make it faster and easier to do the work we need to do. You know, there are important safety considerations to make sure we're still um, uh, staying on top of. But there are a lot of ways that we can streamline permitting um, uh, that will save taxpayer money and will save time and money for small businesses and uh, and folks existing in the city. So um, that's where our platform looks most specifically. Yeah. It's something we all hear from the public again and again, everywhere from a renovation to a kitchen in a in a new restaurant and far beyond um, and mm-hmm. work that we can do on that front. OK, yeah. um, I love the name One City, by the way. I think it's out of all the brands. It's a great name. Like it just kind of makes you feel really good. So for those listeners who've liked what they've heard, um, how do they get involved? What do you need from them? Um, tell us uh, this is your this is your chance to do a little bit of plug for one city yeah yeah well we are a mostly volunteer run organization so uh, we always need more volunteers to help us canvas door-to-door um, attend events um, but there's also things like kind of in the background to do too so uh, always uh, happy to have more volunteers help us and of course to run a campaign we do need money yeah <laughs> um, you know it's not cheap to do print all of the promotional materials. So any donation of any amount um, is appreciated. We are a party of small donations, many small donations. Yeah, I think our average donation is $36. We have a lot of small donors, um, but uh, grateful for um, every donation. You can sign up for a lawn sign. You can sign up to volunteer. You can make a donation all at onecityvancouver.ca. We are on all of the social media platforms, um, not hard to find at all. And and maybe we can just plug our our, our fellow council candidates in yeah. particular. One city is running four of us for council, uh, Iona and I, mm-hmm. as well as Ian Cromwell, who I mentioned, who yeah. uh, is a, a public health expert um, and a local musician and yeah. does a lot of work um, organizing local arts and culture events and street festivals and uh, a lot of focus on health and community in that way. Um, And our fourth fourth council candidate is Matthew Norris, who is the president of the Urban Native Youth Association. He's doing a PhD in Indigenous governance. He's worked at the Union of BC Indian Chiefs and uh, a a deep wealth of knowledge um, in uh, governance and also connections and relationships uh, across Indigenous communities and, and the nation. So um, four voices, I think, would make a big difference on this council to to um, focus and and work hard and tackle the issues uh, that on the doorsteps Vancouverites keep telling us are important to them. Yeah, great. Well, and they've got to hear this story from the two of you. Great spokespeople for uh, Wind City. Christine Boyle. Iona Bonami, thank you very much for being on Coastal Front today. Best of luck with this upcoming election. It's only around the corner, so I appreciate you being in here. Yeah, t- thank today. you so much for having us. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah. It was fun. A pleasure. Thanks. Good.